Welcome to the Boston Speaks Up podcast. I am Dan Rowinski, uh, coming in today to host for Zach's video. If you recall, for the first Boston Speaks Up podcast we did, uh, Zach and I said we'd be sharing the hosting duties going forward. So today you've got me with a great stand-up comedian, Dana J. Bine, and we're going to talk about uh, what it's like to live in Inman Square for a decade between the two of us, uh, some life affirmations like being uh, smart enough and having people like you, um, and what it means to be a stand-up comedian in Boston. So let's get going. Did you just turn on the metronome? I don't know. It is recording. It is. I think so. What did you just say? Sentient piles of mistakes. I said every human is a sentient pile of mistakes. Just a, it's just a curated mistakes. And some of us like to frame our mistakes uh, and show them off to the world as lessons. But some of us like to put our mistakes under the rug and pretend like they never existed. Uh, welcome to the Boston Speaks Up podcast. That is the wisdom of stand-up comedian Dana J. Vine. Uh, Dana. Hi. Wisdom. That, that, feels, that feels weird. There are days where I don't feel so wise, but that's definitely something that I've learned. Oh, you're human. We all kind of suck and we're all kind of cool at the same yeah, time. Yeah, I agree with that. We're all, we're all a lot more complex than the uh, social media would have us believe. Uh, so I was going to start with other things, but I actually kind of like this string, um, of sentient piles of mistakes. It reminds me of, uh, Chuck Wendig. Um, Chuck Wendig is a, like a fantasy author and he has these like really funny, uh, sort of like daily affirmations on Twitter. Like, Hey, you're a pile of stardust skeleton gas bag who, you know, makes noises out of your face and they're actually smart. Right. Um, and you do a lot of the daily affirmation yeah. type of stuff too. So what is what is your saying? What how does it go? I say love yourself, take care of each other, and follow your fucking dreams. And uh, it started as a self affirmation, and then it stuck with people. And many of the positive things that I write on social media started that way, or are that way in in their present tense. And uh, and and I I feel like. Self-affirmation is affirmation for everyone because everyone needs to know that we're all in this together. We're all sharing the same light. We all have the same struggles. Yeah. So I, I like to share my affirmations. Um, yeah, and you post you posted a lot, sometimes with variations, and I make fun of you for yeah. it. Um, Thanks for that. Yeah. Well, you know, somebody's <laughs> got to bring you down. I, I need I need to be I need to be humbled. Well, so. Uh, Dana, so he, he posts that affirmation on Facebook uh, at least a couple times a week. And so I started making fun of him by, um, by texting him pictures of my made bed with the line, Dana, be the change you want to see in the world. Make your bed. <laughs> Make your bed. Be Make the change. Make your goddamn bed. Uh, you have a couple others too, right? Yeah, I have quite a few um, that I live by. I think uh, your inner critic is an asshole. Uh, that is that is really important. Your inner critic is the reason you don't take 
risks that really have no consequence other than what your anxiety has applied to said risk, like asking someone out, applying for a job, going on a roller coaster, you know, uh, picking up a guitar. Um, I say, when you open yourself to the world, the world opens itself to you, which is basically like share, you know, tell your story. You are the author of your own story. And when you share, you don't realize this until it happens, but your story is the key to unlocking someone else's story. Um, that's kind of how that works, right? Yeah. Like we don't exist in vacuums. Like I look back on my personal career and I go, why did I become a writer? Yeah. Right. And I became a writer is because I was, it used to be a chef and Anthony Bourdain wrote a book called kitchen confidential and I saw that and go, wow, he wrote about us as chefs. But I also saw it and go, holy shit, he used writing to get the fuck out of the kitchen. Yeah. Right. Uh, so like his story ended up, you know, helping my story sort of take. Uh, he connected with you in a way that was bigger than being in a kitchen. Right. I actually just talked about this today. The reason I became a comedian didn't become clear, crystal clear to me until like the last <clears throat> five years. But upon reflection, I realized as a kid, all of the people that made me feel the best were funny people. All of the people that made me laugh were people I wanted to be like. And the reason for that is because laughter is connective. Laughter is, is social connective tissue. Uh, I don't know if you remember Victor Borga. He was a humorist and a pianist. He has a quote that is incredible. And the quote is, laughter is the shortest distance between two people. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, and the people that connected with me in my formative years connected the hardest via laughter. And so that's why I wanted to be funny. Uh, and ultimately that's why I probably became a comedian. So, but you're not just a comedian. Um, you have been teaching stand-up for 14 years, mostly at Improv Boston. Yeah. How did you get into that? Um, accidentally, uh, I was doing <laughs> improv and stand-up and, uh, a uh, peer asked me to help run a workshop group and we were running it out of a Greg Dean, how to do stand up book. And it, it was fun. Uh, I felt pretty good at it. I felt like I was helping people along. I felt like we were all growing together. And that group had their student showcase and a colleague of mine, Will Luera, who used to be the artistic director of Improv Boston is now the uh, director of Florida Improv Theater in Sarasota, Florida. He, uh, he sent me a link to an opportunity to teach stand-up at the Boston Center for Adult Education. And this is 2004 or five. He's like, you should apply to this. And I did, I got it. I was very underqualified at the time, but I took it seriously, put together a syllabus, started teaching there. And I didn't know this uh, at the time, but Will was basically grooming me to teach stand-up at Improv Boston. And that became the syllabus and the curriculum for Improv Boston stand-up classes, which he and I started together in 2005. And I've been teaching there since. Um, and that's been great. We didn't have any stand-up classes or shows really. Uh, then there wasn't much. And uh, now there's lots of, there's like six or seven intro to stand-up comedy classes and several stand-up shows there. And on top of that, I teach, um, I teach one-on-ones. I've taught kids. I used to teach kids at Wheelock Family Theater. I've taught at the Boston Center for Adult Ed for a number of years. I've taught workshops at Dartmouth, UMass Boston, Boston College. I've taught seniors. 
adults with disabilities. You know, it's just, yeah. And and now you're teaching at MIT. Yeah. So <laughs> let's go into that a little bit because it's interesting. Like, how did you get the gig teaching uh, nerds to stop talk? And uh, like, how has it how has it been going so far? Because you're in the um, CSAIL, the yeah. computer science computer uh, science uh, AI lab. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it, again, sideways. Uh, one of my favorite things about my career to date is that I, I say a lot of yeses, uh, but those yeses are, are, are parallel somehow to what I want to do, to the things that I, I believe in. And, um, you know, doing stand-up and teaching stand-up, I'll just, a, a lot of yeses, but I, I got into stand-up teaching at MIT kind of accidentally as well in that a friend had some work he was doing and he was solicited for some one-on-one work and he didn't have the bandwidth for it. So he kicked it to me. And the one-on-one work was with a, uh, an international postdoc in the computer science AI program at MIT. And he was looking to become a professor and he needed some public speaking chops. He needed to be more confident in front of people. He needed to be less monotonous when he spoke. And uh, I did some work with him that was successful. He liked it so much, he signed up for my stand-up class at Improv Boston. And his advisor um, saw his performance and really saw the applications of stand-up comedy. And because of that, I got a lot more work. I got some more one-on-ones, and then I got a small group workshop. And uh, recently, I was doing a full semester in this computer science AI lab, 13 weeks uh, for people in that program. And uh, basically the applications of stand-up comedy, performing and teaching stand-up comedy uh, are everywhere. You can apply it socially, you can apply it romantically, professionally. Uh, all of this stuff is connective. Every, uh, uh, romantic partners always say they want a funny... They always funny do. Mate, I want right? a guy with a sense of humor. And uh, that's not always true. Let's be fair. That's not always true. No, they want true. a guy with a good credit score first and foremost. <laughs> That's not necessarily true. Uh, but if your credit credit score is terrible, then you better be really funny. <laughs> yeah, if you if you have a, a five ten credit score, you better be hosting uh, the open mic. Yeah. On Tuesdays. Uh, oh man. It's uh, too close to home. <laughs> um. So was he funny? The, the first student, was he actually funny? He was funny. The problem when, when uh, he was very funny. The problem with funny is that funny offstage and funny on stage are two different things. And, y- and you know that. Um, a lot of people think they're funny and they are, but they're not funny performatively. They're funny socially. Right? A lot of people have been told they're funny their entire lives, but a lot of the things they've been categorized, have been categorized as funny are street jokes or stereotypes or offensive things. And then they come into a class and they realize that not, a, not any of those things translate uh, in terms of stand-up comedy success. So they have to redefine what funny is. They have to actually realize that the funny that they've been told they are is only funny because of the circles that they're in. It's not funny. It's not funny as objectively as they thought. It's more funny subjectively in the tight-knit circles they have. So if you haven't built a circle of trust with people, what they find funny from you is a lot harder to achieve. Um, yeah, so I took your stand-up class. You did. And we had that one guy, uh, I think he was from New Hampshire, and he was a little bit of a, 
misogynist. And he he was the guy at the end of the class. He's like, can you hide my gun parts? Yeah, that was weird. No, no, we will not hide your gun parts. Will, just general rule for all of life. Don't for bring everybody. gun parts. Don't bring gun parts because we're not going to hide them. I would have been less scared if it was an actual gun, but it was gun parts. He was assembling weapons. And he was a pilot too. Yeah. Oh, shit. Um, but he learned pretty quickly that there, you know, there are certain type of jokes you don't make. Now, you are a fearless-ish comedian, but yeah. there are lines you won't cross. Like, why? Well, I'm fearless, but I'm not a dick, right? Like, uh, I think that I, I, I reserve my, I reserve my, uh, my dick tank for people who deserve it. Right? I don't, I usually, I want comedy to be funny to everybody. Like, if there's a thousand people in the crowd, and there rarely are for me yet, <laughs> but if there's a thousand people and 950 laugh, I want to figure out why those 50 didn't laugh, right? I want to find out what, what could I have done to get that 50? So I, I strategize. I try to make myself lower than or equal to the audience, and I try not to punch down. I know a lot of comedians say that there are no limits on stage, but I think if you... I'm not saying don't take risks, don't be challenging, I don't challenge your audience, but I just, you know, making fun of demographics that are vulnerable. If I'm a man and I'm making fun of women, or if I'm a white, a straight, cishet white dude, which I am, you can't tell because this is audio, uh, but I'm not gonna pick on the LGBTQ community. I'm not gonna pick on people of color. I'm not gonna pick on the homeless. I'm not gonna pick on the disabled. Like I'm gonna pick on myself. I'm gonna, I, I wanna be equal to or lower than, and I'm, not saying you can't make jokes about any of those topics or demographics, but I'm saying they're less likely to work and they're more likely to cause trouble. And I want people to laugh. My goal is to get people to laugh. Uh, I want people's, uh, I want people's trust. I want people to trust me as a comic and, and I want them to, to believe that we're all in it together when I'm on stage. Um, speaking of picking on yourself, your first album is called, uh, Western Masochist. Western Masochist. Yeah. Um, so yeah, you're from Western Mass, and I not am. the nice part of it. No. Uh, how would you <laughs> end up in the big city? Uh, systems. I. <laughs> my family is pretty uh, blue collar. Um, they're blue That's and white collar. Diplomatic yeah. for you. Yeah, yeah. My family is very like they. Uh, my family is very system heavy. They they work to live you know, and they live to work and they don't question systems. Systems and authority run your life. You don't have a lot of free will. Uh, you don't have as much, they don't, I feel like people, a lot of people don't realize how stuck in the systems they are. Um, but my family, they work hard. They're Patriots fans. They, they watch the games every Sunday. Um, and then they don't question things as often as they could. Uh, and for me, I was raised in that. So I also didn't question systems or authority until it was too late. Uh, so I was very smart in school. I was afraid of everything. I was an introvert as a kid and I was scared of everything. And I would read and I would read and I would read. So I was a very smart kid who was afraid to make mistakes. I was afraid of adults, afraid of authority, afraid of getting an A minus. So I, I got straight A's. I was always a brilliant kid until about my junior year of high school. Uh, in my junior year of high school, I realized that the education system, that I was going to get into college, that I was going to get into university. So I stopped caring as much. and I started being a little bit more social. I started to come out of my shell a bit. But then I just went to college. I didn't have the wherewithal of the big picture to know that I had options 
Instead, the next thing you did, if you were smart, was you went to school. So I applied to schools. I wanted to be in Boston. I loved Boston as a city. I always had, uh, I liked the, as a kid, I loved Science Museum, the Museum of Science. I loved the the New England Aquarium. I loved the sports teams. I loved the common. Uh, I loved everything about Boston. So I wanted to be here. So I applied to uh, BU, BC, Northeastern, and BC gave me the most money. And they were so, so you chose the Jesuits because they were rich. No, I chose the Jesuits because they gave me the most money. I also loved BC's campus and its distance and proximity. Like it's got this nice, beautiful campus that's not far from the city. So you're in it, but not in it. Um, but I was the opposite of your stereotypical Boston college student. And I went to BC and I didn't have to. I met some of my best friends there. I started doing improv there. But uh, but I had I, I had college debt that I accrued and I, I didn't I still to this day my degree looks like I did it on purpose I ended up a theater arts major and a philosophy minor but like that's all very that's like retconning why I went to BC uh, I was in the corporate world for a while still hustling in systems went to school got the job not questioning things and I, I because I was raised the way I was raised I didn't believe the arts could be a career and some of my family still doesn't believe the art they still think are you still doing that stand-up thing like it's a thing I can just shut off like that's my life I've been doing it for 20 years it's not going away (laughs) it's a it's 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 who I am and uh and so here I am now uh I didn't realize that the arts could be a career probably until about 12 years ago and I didn't take it seriously until about eight years ago and my first set my first stand-up set was in 1998 1998. What year is it now? 2019. That's a long time. But I took a long time doing just improv. Uh, there was a long period of time where I was calling myself a stand-up, but I was only doing like 10 sets a year. Whereas I do that sometimes in a week now. Yeah. So in terms of the uh, the young kid from Western Mass coming to the big city, uh, it's not cliche at all, by the way. Uh, no, it's very cliche. No, I'm I, I'm from Maine. Like this is what happens with people from New England. Uh, you end up in Boston if you're going to stay in New England. Otherwise, you get the fuck out of here. The like, big city that could. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the 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 kid who looked a lot like Eminem uh, met and yeah. fucked Sam the Eagle. Um, yeah. Comes comes to. Uh, the big city. Yeah. Turns into a stand-up comedian. And now you're kind of a big deal around here. Uh, it's I just think, longevity. Yeah. I don't think I'm a big deal. I just think people, I've imprinted in a negative way. <laughs> no, I, I've been around a while. You know, I definitely, uh, I put in my time. And I think that if people know me, that's why. And uh, that's, that's what this kind of career takes. You just have to keep grinding it out. I, uh, yeah. Yeah. I've been in Boston hustling for a long time. Um, yeah, you're, I mean, you've kind of reached a little bit of a regional celebrity status. Well, thank you for that. Um, I mean, I've been in Inman Square for 18, 18 years. So I would say I'm a hyper-regional junior varsity celebrity. If you live between Broadway and Cambridge Street in Cambridge, you know me. <laughs> but I'll say that. You probably know. And if you're a comedian in the New England area, you probably know. But outside of that, I don't know. I, I try not to take my popularity too seriously. I um, Well, that's how I met you, because I also live in Inman Square. So you've been there almost 18 years now. Yeah. Uh, 
Why? Like, lots of reasons, and not all of them are reasons I'm proud of. <laughs> the first reason is <clears throat> I moved there because Improv Boston used to be in Inman Square. And uh, I got my first non-college apartment in, where is the apartment I'm in? I moved from Brighton, from my off-campus apartment in Brighton to Inman Square in 2001. I had just recently been cast in the Thursday night improv cast at Improv Boston. It was called Maestro and <laughs> the Maestro cast. And it was a pretty affordable apartment, two bedrooms. And my landlord has only raised the rent roughly five or 600 bucks in that amount of time, gradually. So it's still fairly affordable. It's not a nice apartment, but it's central to the things I do and the things I love. I love Inman Square. Yeah, so I've been in Inman Square for eight years. Mm -hmm. uh, so you've got a decade on me and I've watched it change, you know, not a ton, but enough yeah. over the, like, uh, the last eight, eight, nine years. Yeah. Like for instance, there used to be a Taco Bell across from your apartment. That's right. It used to be a KFC Taco Bell and now it's luxury condos. And on the other corner, there used to be a Computune auto body and now it's a 7-Eleven. And uh, yeah, there's, there's a lot of gentrification happening in my neighborhood. But there's also a lot of cool things yeah. in Inman. So what is nice about Inman Square? It's just sort of like that... Uh, sort of central Cambridge, Somerville, Camber Camberville area. I mean, I love, there's a lot of options for, uh, for art and dining and, and drinking. Uh, and it's not, it's not in the, it's kind of off the collegiate radar, which is nice. Even though we're perched between MIT and Harvard, it's, it, there's not a T-stop near you you know it's a seven minute walk to central it's a 15 minute walk to harvard 20 minutes depending on your pace and uh so it's off the it's off the beaten path a little bit but there's so many good places to eat and drink there's bukowski tavern highland fried the druid trina's like it's just uh city girl um muna there's all these great places city girls going away at the end of the month is it going away or aren't they just diminishing their hours if it's going away i'm going to be really sad so uh they are ceasing their dinner service and they'll only have brunch come on and they'll do private events out of there and they'll cater so they're not going to do dinner anymore so if you're a cambridge resident get to city girl before the i think it's actually the first week in march yeah um and then uh on top of that, I still have a job, a regular job. I work at Inman Oasis, which is this amazing little wellness facility that does massage therapy and hot tubs, private hot tubs, community hot tubs, and that's awesome. Um, and there's just, just so many nooks of amazing in Inman Square. Uh, Christina's Ice Cream, mm. All-Star Pizza. The, yeah, so there's all-star pizza and all-star sandwich. Yeah. And so I call that all-star square. The all-star corner, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I actually go out to eat and drink and Inman as much as anybody. Um, and I have to say, I probably, like, I've eaten at all-star sandwich or pizza more than the rest of them combined. Yeah. Right? It's just... Uh, cheap and quick. Cheap and quick. And they, they like me, they know me. Uh, when, I, when I had a Tinder profile, I just said, cheap and quick. Hey. <laughs> um, 
Yeah. So let's see. What else do we have? What else can we talk about? Whatever you want. I'm game for whatever. We covered the neighborhood. We covered teaching. We covered my background. Uh, oh, you know what? I, I like the idea of is uh, talking about sort of the Boston uh, comedy scene. Okay. Um, so there have been a, like a lot of you know, well-known comics that have come out of the Boston mm-hmm. area in the last several years. How has it changed since you've sort of got into it in the early aughts? And like, what does it seem like now? It feels a lot more supportive than it used to. Maybe, and maybe that's because I don't give a shit anymore. <laughs> maybe it's because I'm older and I've kind of earned it. Um, I feel like there, the indie stand-up comedy scene, the DIY stand-up comedy scene is much bigger. The alternative stand-up comedy scene is much bigger. There are so many bar shows. Um, and, uh, and there aren't many, there aren't many clubs proper in, in the Boston area. There's the comedy studio, there's Laugh Boston, you know, and, and there's, there's not, there's not much else, right? There's like, you know, then you got a lot of indie shows like The Gas at Great Scott, um, Thunder Bar at Wonder Bar, at Alston, you got Mendoza Line at the Dugout Cafe, you've got, you got, uh, you got city side comedy on Monday night. It's just all these indie shows that are everywhere and these amazingly produced indie shows. Uh, the Hideout, which is now at the White Bull Tavern. It used to be at Durgan Park, the Hideout downstairs, but now it's Durgan Park is gone. Rest in peace, Durgan Park. The, to the great park in the sky. Yeah. That's not my best yeah, there's just so many. There's just so many shows. And, uh, you know, there's, uh, I mean, there's, there's other clubs. There's Nick's Comedy Stop, which is downtown. That's also, um, and I'm just listing clubs. But I feel like my point is, is that there used, it seems like there used to be a lot more clubs. And now there's a lot more indie shows. So there's a lot more competition for the club spots. Right. Uh, and that's where, like, the stand-up classes, like Improv Boston and, um, and some of the more prominent open mics, like the one at the comedy studio yeah. and the one at Improv Boston, the, uh, the lottery, the Wednesday yeah. lottery, Tuesday, the comedy hell open mic at, at uh, the comedy studio. And then Wednesday night is the comedy lottery in Improv Boston. And so those kind of become like sort of the theater programs to the, like the bigger shows, right? Yeah. I mean, there's not really, there's no yellow brick road to stand up success. So when you're a new comic, you don't have many options. You can hit the open mic scene. And for those who are uninitiated, open mics are like stand up practice. There's shows that you don't have to be booked on. And there's shows that you don't have to be vetted for. You can just show up and sign up. Most, most open mics are show up and go up. And um, yeah, you can do those. And it's usually open mic Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, maybe. But um, but yeah, I mean, you can you hit if you're a new comic, you can hit the open mic scene, or you can you can take a class. But but there's not no one no one can get you there other than yourself. You really have to have the motivation, the drive, and the and the passion for it. And uh, it, it's a peculiar kind of uh, drive. So you know you know me. I'm a, I do. I'm a writer. I've had I've been on stage you know, grilling executives from tech companies in front of thousands <laughs> of people. I've been on TV, I've been on radio. 
And the most discouraged I've ever been in front of an audience was in front of 12 co- comedians yeah. at an open mic right. who were dead silent. I tell my joke and I hear nothing. And right. then I never, like, I never went back on stage. <laughs> uh, I told you this year I would do it again. So I, I will keep that promise. But yeah, no, comedy's tough, man. Um, and if you don't have sort of the mental wherewithal to deal with sort of getting scared screwed by it it's yeah. not necessarily screwed it's not necessarily the right word no but it, uh, it, it, it feet if you if you are the type of person that can't depersonalize things comedy will eat you from the inside out like i tell new comics the best advice i can give you is to learn how to swallow your pride because because it's not all about you there are hundreds of us competing for the same stuff and if you're not writing performing analyzing and uh, inquiring about bookings all the time, you're missing out on something. So ultimately, you're always going to be missing out on something. And you're not going to get everything that you ask for. And it, the reality is, is you're going to fail on every level all the time until you start failing on every level just some of the time. And then you're going to start failing on every level just less often. Right? And that's how you get good. You just fail less. You get more consistent. You get more consistent bookings, you get more consistent laughs, you get more consistent shows, and you start to grow more consistently. But you have to be open to that change. You have to be open to that failure. And if you're not, you're going to flame out in three years. Yeah, it was more like six weeks for me. Um, yeah, but you have so much else going on. Yeah, and well, that's the other thing is if you if you can't if you can't hit the gas with stand up, and it's never going to go anywhere. I uh, it was one of those things I wanted to see if I could do, and then I did it. And then I go, okay, I did that. Um, so I think let's let's finish off. It's a, I know this is a hard question for you to ask. Uh, we talked about it on the way here. But what are your goals, Dana? What's next? I know in, I said in two years I will have a best-selling book and you'll be writing for Always Sunny. Yeah. But what is more, what is the realistic uh, goals for you? What do you want to do in comedy and life in the next couple years? Uh, in... Comedy, I want my my stage voice to become more authentic. I want to start talking. I don't think it's easy to make people laugh, but I want to make people laugh and make them think at the same time. That sounds so pretentious, but like I want to actually start doing comedy about the things I really care about. Uh, I think comedy makes a big difference uh, in that regard, and it can. Um, I would love, I was nominated recently to do a TEDx Boston talk, so I'm working on some topics for that. Um, I think I could see myself in New York City in the next couple of years. Um, maybe not right away, but I, would, I think I'm more of a New York person than an L.A. person. And I think I would love to explore New York City. I'm definitely going to be getting myself out there on the festival circuit in the next couple of years. Uh, I think ultimately I would love to see myself do some appearances on some late night shows and, uh, yeah, and, and explore late night comedy options on TV, if that's a possibility. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's what I want to do comedy wise. And in terms of life, I just want to keep motivating people to, uh, see their light. Everybody's got this light within them. Some of us live perpendicular to it. Some of us live parallel to it. And I want to help people see that light. And for me, just to be clear and a little bit crunchy, uh, I'm not religious at all, but I think the closest I get is I do think there's a light within all of us that includes, some people call it God, I don't call it God. I think it's inspiration, love, creativity, all of this stuff, and everybody has access to it, but many of us are taught to smother it. Many of us are taught to not look at it. Many of us are taught that it's bad. And for me, I disagree with all of those things. I think it's great, and I think it's how you achieve 
your purpose and your purpose is in there and, and it's a, it's a purpose that only you can only you can achieve but if you don't if you don't see that light you'll never get there and you won't feel fulfilled so for me i want people to see that light so if I, if what i'm doing is inspiring you ultimately you're kind of seeing it a crack of light underneath the door and hopefully you'll open that door and see your own light and start doing the things that your inner critic tells you that you can't and you can achieve that is it called happiness is that what people are looking for happiness fulfillment nirvana nirvana i like nirvana uh they're a good band yeah um and also yeah fuck that inner critic yeah yeah it's like sideways and stuff uh, um such an asshole yeah dickhead Anyway, uh, so that has been the Boston Speaks Up podcast. I've been your guest host, uh, Dan Rowinski, with uh, stand-up comedian Dana J. Bine. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.